Well, I know we're probably all familiar with uh, that famous line from my friend C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, uh, but I'd like to read it with you again uh, this morning, just because I think it's a helpful launching point into our passage. Basically, it's about the line in the sand. Lewis wrote this. He said, A man who was merely a man and said the, the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We don't get far in the book of Revelation before we are confronted with a vision of Jesus that is clearly and unambiguously an exaltation of his lordship over the universe and therefore his lordship over our lives. When we read uh, in Revelation 1, especially verses 4 through 8, at the beginning of this um, apocalyptic letter that John writes to encourage the church of his day, we see Jesus exalted. And he, he is not exalted as one among many equal prophets. He's not exalted as one who gives us some teaching that, hey, we should consider amongst other teachings. He's presented to us as the unparalleled Lord of the universe. The Lordship of Jesus is the line in the sand. You know, so much of our lives we deal with necessary gray areas where we can't, you know, come down firm with with absolutes. But this is not one of those areas. Jesus' lordship is unambiguous. It is a black and white issue. And as John opens up this apocalyptic letter, he greets the church in the name of the Trinity and focuses us on the work of Jesus. Because how we relate to Jesus, it turns out, is everything. We talked last week about how important it is for us to focus on the end, to know what God is doing with history that will enable us to walk by faith today. That's what Revelation is all about. But as we get into the details, we're going to realize very quickly that it all focuses on our relationship to Jesus. Is he the Lord, not just of the universe, but of our lives? Or will we just go with the flow of the culture around us? Again, how we relate to Jesus is both of eternal importance and immediate contemporary importance. We need to answer that question for the sake of eternity, but we also need to answer that question for the sake of today. Again, Jesus's lordship is the line in the sand. So as we unpack these uh, verses, it's just five verses this morning, but five powerful verses with a lot of um, Old Testament imagery. And and I've told you, I think before, but you know, Revelation is uh, filled with, I mean, just loaded with Old Testament Uh, allusions, quotations, uh, because it it focuses on, again, the the consummation of God's saving work. So we'll see a lot of references to the Old Testament throughout our series, and and we'll see it even this morning. But let's pick it up in verse 4. Now, it's a prophetic work. It's an apocalyptic prophetic work, but it's also a letter, the book of Revelation. This was written down, and so John does include some uh, the normal things that we would expect in a letter of the first century. So he writes, you know, who he is. He's John writing to uh, these seven particular churches in Asia. And as we'll see later, those churches are a good representation for all churches. So there's a lot for, for all of us to learn 
from this apocalyptic letter. But again, notice in verse 4, he starts off, he says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, we're in Revelation 1, verse 4, and he says, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Now, before we run on too quickly here there into verse 5, let's just unpack verse 4 there. So, He's writing to, again, these seven churches in Asia. This is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey of the Roman Empire. Um, you just need to know that these churches would have faced varying degrees of persecution, okay? But they all would have faced some degrees of persecution. So that was the reality. We'll, we'll learn next week that John is writing from uh, exile on the island of Patmos, and God has given him this vision of Jesus to encourage the church to walk by faith through tough times. He starts off, though, with the classic Christian greeting that we find all over the New Testament, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. Now, before we run too quickly past grace and peace, we have to just remember that that's not just a, a greeting. It's an intentional tweak on the normal greeting of the, the Greco-Roman world of the day to say this. God facilitates grace for us, and God is the only one who can actually give us peace. And so he starts off and he says, grace and peace to you. But then he doesn't just say grace and peace to you. He then articulates where we get grace and peace from, or really who we get grace and peace from. And not surprisingly, he actually focuses on the Trinity. Watch verse 4 again. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Now there is a focus right here on the eternality of God. That God is actively reigning right now. He is, but he also is the one who was, who has always been, and the one who will always be. And so when we talk about the eternality of God, we're talking about the fact that God is sovereign over all of history, all the events of history. We'll come back to that later on in our passage this morning, but he starts off with an emphasis on the eternality and sovereignty of God. We might be getting echoes here of Isaiah 41, verse 10, where again, it's the same idea talking about God's eternality as the basis of uh, his sovereignty, the fact that he's always been and always will be. And while we can't understand that uh, to the degree that, um, you know, he, he does, obviously, we are given this information about God because we need to know that he's sovereign over our history, over the details of our lives. So he says, grace and peace to you, which they come from God the Father, right? Who one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Now here we come to really the first of what will be many, uh, maybe tough to decode um, images in Revelation. But the seven spirits before the throne of God are either, I'll give you two options this morning. They are either angels that serve the church on behalf of God. Or I think more likely, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. And we get some clarity on that in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, where these are called the spirits of God that are serving uh, on behalf of God to the church. So um, I think it's a reference here to the Holy Spirit. Now, why seven? Well, because as we'll see in Revelation, seven's an important number, a number that signifies completion. And so we've got seven churches in Asia, which turns out they end up representing all churches for all time. And the Spirit is at work in how many of those churches? All seven. And so there's a reference here to the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church today. There's some allusion here probably to uh, some imagery from the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 4, that, this, that it's not by might, but it's by the Spirit of God that, uh, that Zerubbabel will be successful there in the context of Zechariah. But 
as we, we look at it here, the fact is he's referenced the Father, and then he references the, the Spirit, that the Spirit actually dispenses grace and peace to the church, I think is what he's going for. That's why there's seven spirits. But grace and peace also comes, ultimately, verse 5, from Jesus Christ. So he says, and from Jesus Christ. Now notice how he describes Jesus in the rest of that, the first half of that verse. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, John, he sets up the rest of the vision with some concepts that are crucial that we understand about who God is, Father, Spirit, and now Son. So talking about Jesus, he says, Jesus is the faithful witness. That's a reference to the fact that Jesus was faithful unto the cross, that he was obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus has won victory for the church through his death, but not just through his death, through his resurrection, because he's not just faithful in that he went to the cross and died, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. That, that phrasing there, firstborn, it talks about the fact that Jesus is the preeminent resurrected one. His resurrection is the first installment of the rest of the new creation. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be raised unto eternal life in the likeness of Jesus, who was raised from the dead. So there's a recognition here that Jesus didn't just die, but that he conquered death and rose from the dead. And subsequently, he is always has been, but is proven to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, these are big theological concepts. We're diving deep into the Trinity this morning on a cold, icy January Sunday morning. But just work with me here, because John is writing to people who need practical instruction on how to navigate a secular empire like the Roman Empire. So they're living in in times that are getting less and less, or that they're less Christian, um, even than our times, and our times are getting less and less Christian. So it's, it, there's, I think, a nice parallel there for us as far as the circumstances in Asia Minor and what we're facing. But what he does is he says, you need to know that, that yes, grace and peace are given to us by the Father, who's the foundation for it, his eternal reign, by the Spirit, who dispenses it to the churches, and by the Son, who mediates it because of not just his death, but his resurrection. I think there's also a hint here in verse 5, talking about Jesus, for us to understand that when we are called to walk on the hard road of persecution, that when we are called, perhaps some will be in the history of the church, to walk the road of martyrdom, that that road, the road that might lead to an untimely death, the road that might lead to imprisonment in some contexts, in our culture, maybe it might lead to awkward conversations or job losses or, you know, a difficulty with family members and all the rest, right? As we walk that road, Jesus' resurrection proves that it's worth it to walk and follow the faithful martyr or the faithful one. Listen, grace and peace come from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Grace and peace come from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You'll never find it anywhere else. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, at least at the outset here, to think about the fact that the Father, who has always been, who will always be, and who is right now, that he has facilitated for us grace, forgiveness, and peace. Genuine peace. Peace with him and the capacity to enjoy peace with others. He's the foundation of it. Again, the same line of thinking is found in Isaiah 41 
And one of the takeaways from focusing on God's eternality and sovereignty over everything is Isaiah says, so do not fear. And sometimes we just want to cut to the, the chase and like, I, I would love to not fear right now. I'm struggling with anxiety over this. I'm worried about that. We're panicking about this. I would love to just not fear, but we can't get to do not fear if we don't remember, oh, God is eternal and sovereign over all of history. Or we can think about the Spirit, for example, in that the Spirit creates and, dis- and sustains the church and again dispenses grace and peace to the church. Guess what? It's not just that God is at work. Brothers and sisters, hear me. God is at work in us. His Spirit is at work in His church right now. And so there's encouragement there, even when we see discouragement around us and sometimes even in us. We can also see it as we look to the Son, the faithful witness. We're called to follow Him as He provides the basis of grace and peace. He's the the mediator who mediates grace and peace. And guess what? Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can follow Jesus without fear, even if it means we die. Now, again, in our culture, we're not really facing that threat, but we need to know that when John was writing this, as he's encouraging the church of his day, it was more of a threat that Christians could plausibly be not just imprisoned, but killed. And John doesn't say, listen, make sure you keep your head down so, that doesn't end, so you don't end up like that. He doesn't say, you know what, just keep a low profile there in your local community, in Ephesus, in, in, uh, you know, in Laodicea, in Colossae. He doesn't say, you know, keep a low profile so that way you're not noticed. He basically is going to say, follow Jesus to the end. And because he's the firstborn from the dead, if it should happen that the cost of you following Jesus is your death, we're good. We're covered. Again, there's this line in the sand that John is drawing for us. So we see grace and peace come from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's much more that we'll see as as the Trinity is revealed throughout Revelation. But this work that the Trinity does is indeed centered on the Son's sacrifice for us and the benefits from it. So watch, we're in the middle of verse 5, okay, Revelation 1, picking up in the middle of verse 5. To him, this is to Jesus, right? To him who loves us, And has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here in the end of verse 5 and in verse 6, the Apostle John talks about, listen, we're not just talking like in grand theological categories here. Jesus loves you. Like he loves you. And the evidence of his love is seen in the fact that he has set us free from our sins. How? By his blood. So we circle back the work of the Trinity. We circle back. It's it's centered on the, the cross and Jesus dying for our sins and shedding his blood so that we can be forgiven. So we are given not just the love of Jesus, but we are given freedom from our sins. We'll talk more in a minute about what that looks like. But you just need to know that you don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore. Jesus has set us free. And what did he do with us? Well, verse 6, he made us a kingdom. And as Pastor Jesse, during our singing time, was reminding us, right, there are these truths that we have been welcomed into now the kingdom of God. We are the, we make up the kingdom of God as his people. And so now we are his kingdom. A kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests, A kingdom of people set apart to serve God in every aspect of our lives. 
dedicated to God, holy unto God. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I was, I don't know why I ended up here. I was in the, at the end of uh, Zechariah this week looking at that. Um, it's kind of like Revelation. It's another apocalyptic chunk of scripture. You know, that's my favorite. So anyway, so there I was. But you know, at the end of, of Zechariah, it's so funny because it talks about how, you know, God's going to rescue his people and, and we're going to live in peace with him forever. And then there's this random note where it's like, even all the pots in Jerusalem are going to be holy to the Lord. And I love those pots. I mean, you know, we got we a busy house. We get a lot of dishes. Uh, Kate does a lot of dishes for us. You know, those pots, they're, they're, we use them every day. They're so common, right? We use pots, we cook, we clean, like that's the deal. And, and Zechariah says, when God's done with us, every part of our lives, even those pots in the kitchen that we use all the time for common purposes, even those pots are special unto the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you know that you're just like those pots? We're involved in all kinds of things in our lives. A lot of it is not super glorious. It's just the regular stuff of life. Doing laundry, going to work, going to school, driving here or there. But did you know that we were called to do so as priests of our God and Father? So we ask, how can I go to work today in a way that honors God? How can I be dedicated to God and my family as I relate to my spouse, my children, my brothers, my sisters? How can I honor God and be dedicated to God in my schooling? How, how can I honor God and put God first in my vacation time, right? In, in all areas of our lives, it's, it's, it's powerful here to see that Jesus is not just forgiving us, but he's called us to another purpose. And of course, once again, at the end of verse 6, to him, to Jesus, should be what? Glory and dominion forever and ever. That's the line in the sand. It's not like, oh, maybe there should be dominion given to someone else. No, Jesus rightly has the claim of lordship over creation and therefore over our lives. Jesus frees us from sin. He frees us from sin's penalty by his blood. Yes, we're forgiven. We have grace. We've been declared to be clean, not guilty. But Jesus also frees us from sin's power. We are equipped to say no to sin. We're also made a part of his kingdom for a reason. Probably, uh, the, or the Old Testament allusion here in verse 6 is Exodus 19, verse 6, where uh, God clarifies he's rescued Israel to make them his kingdom of priests. Like that's why he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and the idea here is theologically that theme runs straight through to God's mission for us. That he's rescuing us. Why? For a purpose that we would belong to him. Rescued for a reason. So you might ask the question, well, wait a minute. If I'm really rescued to be a part of God's kingdom and to be his uh, priest in all areas of my life, am I actually doing that? Where is my primary allegiance? Like which kingdom am I most loyal to? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road because where the culture pressures us, People in our family pressure us. People at school and at work pressure us. There's implicit pressure in uh, social media and relationships that we have outside of the church to value and to be, to have our primary allegiance be what their primary allegiance is. To love their kingdom. And it's, to, it's all different. There's all kinds of different stuff. So, and if you're like me, sometimes you marvel at the things that other people can like love and, you know, spend massive amounts of time and money on and all the rest. But the fact is we all are going to struggle to have our primary allegiance be to the Lord over creation. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's some kind of 
you know, weird hobby or pursuit. Maybe it's a career path. Maybe, it, you know, whatever appearance, how we look, fashion, whatever. But we were rescued for a reason. We were called to be a part of his kingdom so that we could serve as priests. And we are priests dedicated to God's glory for his purposes. And so really verses, the, the second half of verse 5 and then verse 6, it's a, little, it's a little basically hymn of praise to Jesus who loves us, right? And therefore who's freed us from our sin. And we might ask, okay, wait a minute. Am I ready for that response to my trials? To praise Jesus in the midst of the challenge and the difficulty? Well, Jesus' work thus prepares us for what is coming next. So watch verse 7, okay? We've already had several Old Testament allusions, but watch verse 7. John writes, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now, what John does here, this is a, we're going to see this a lot in Revelation. So there's a thing where uh, he'll take more than one Old Testament passage and he'll mash them together. Okay, it's like a mixtape of Old Testament passages. All right. If you don't understand what a mixtape is, talk to me after church. Okay, we can talk. So, uh, so he mashes these passages together. So here he takes Daniel 7.13 which is another apocalyptic vision of the Messiah's return, okay? The, the, the Messiah, the Son of Man, will return with the clouds, with the authority and power of God over all of creation. So the Messiah will, will have that authority, right? So he's going to return. And so here John says, basically, we're not there yet. He will come. He is going to return. And then he stitches into that also Zechariah 14, a reference to all eyes seeing him, especially those who, who pierced him, those who were responsible for his crucifixion. And the idea here is that all the earth is going to actually answer to the Lord of creation. Remember, Jesus's lordship is the line in the sand. And so some will mourn his return. Why will they mourn? Because they rejected Jesus and they will realize that they drastically, they drastically misunderstood who he is. And so the day of his return will be a day of mourning for some. And, and John says, listen, just so you know, church, you need to understand that that day is coming. And while that's a warning to those outside the church, on the one hand, to say, you need to make sure you're on the right side of Jesus here when he returns. On the other hand, when he says at the end of verse 7, so it is to be, amen, he's saying, for believers, it's okay. We're, Jesus can return at any moment. Praise God. Let him come because he loves me. And he's freed me from sin, and therefore, he's freed me from judgment. He's freed me from sin, and therefore, he's freed me from judgment. Which means when he returns, I will not face condemnation. I am a part of his kingdom. I'm a part of his family. And so, the warning to the church is, church, listen, he's coming back. He's coming back soon. And we don't know what, when soon is exactly, so... Obviously, it's been 2,000 years since John wrote this. So it could be another 2,000 years or it could be tomorrow. But he, fa- he says, look, look to the clouds. Here he comes. Are we okay with that? Yes, we're okay with that. Because Jesus, by his blood, has purchased our forgiveness. His return is imminent. And so we need to evaluate our relationship to him. For the world outside, there's a calling to respond to the gospel. If you're here this morning, if you're watching this message and you've never put your faith in Jesus, he will return. 
And you don't want to be one of those people that's like, oh, yeah, here he comes. And I had no time for him. And I had no worship of him. And frankly, I was one of those who crucified him and did not respond in faith. Because those people will look on him and they will mourn when he returns. But there's, there's then this warning for the church. Now, every 10 years or so, there's like a batch of asteroid dis- disaster movies. Are you familiar with this genre of movies? Like, don't pretend like you've not seen these. Come on. I know we all saw Armageddon back in the day. <laughs> Remember when Armageddon and Deep Impact came out like the same week? Anyway, there's two movies about asteroids coming to destroy the earth. And so these movies play out. I'm going to ruin them for you, but it's because I love you. So these, there's only so many ways an asteroid disaster movie can play out. So what happens first is somebody figures out there's an asteroid coming. Usually it's a really smart teenage, like up and coming, right, astronomer, right? And they figure out what, oh, and, you know, the best scientists missed it, but they figured out what's coming. And then there's one of two responses. One is, okay, the asteroid's coming. We have six months before it's going to strike the earth. So we're going to go and we're going to destroy the asteroid to do what? Save the earth, right? Or the asteroid's coming and we're going to try to stop it, but we can't stop it. And so in the next six months, two years, sometimes they'll put it down like it's going to happen in 57 days. The asteroid's going to strike the earth and everybody's going to die. And then the movie is what? Well, it's this, well, what should we do in light of the fact that this asteroid is going to strike the earth? And then the characters have to evaluate and they figure out what's most important to them. And if it's a decent movie, usually there's some kind of like restoration with like, a, you know, a broken relationship and the families get reunited. And there's like, you know, dads and sons coming together, you know, all like because, hey, life is short. Like this is what we have. So, the, you know, the movies kind of function in that way. I think that's the way verse seven is meant to function for the church. Look, he's coming. And from the day of your birth, right? You have like 85 to 95 years on average. So you need to figure out what life means in light of the lordship of Jesus. One of the functions of passages like this is to call us to basically take account of the way we're spending our time. And John's writing to to believers who would have struggled because they were trying to fit in with Roman culture maybe too much. And frankly, I just think that's often, maybe every day, our struggle. We just are tempted to go with the flow of American culture too much. And we need to, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, you know, we need to make, live as wise, live as those who are wise, making the most of, the, of our time because the days are evil. Meaning we can waste our time if we don't remember that Jesus is coming back and that he's the Lord of this universe. So I should live in light of that now, right? So because... He frees us from sin. We are freed from judgment, and therefore, we need to reorient our lives appropriately. So maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking, I always think about Jesus like, I'm glad you forgave me of my sins, but now I need to think about it from the perspective of Jesus not only forgave me of my sins, but he rescued me for a reason, to live for him. And he's coming back. So that gives my life clarity and maybe a more distinct purpose than I had before. Well, that leads, of course, into verse 8. And here we have the Lord speaking to the Apostle John, and he gives us this direct quote here. But the Lord says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, there's nice bookends here for our passage, verse 4 and verse 8, on the one who is and who was and who is to come. 
Here God affirms the fact that he is the eternal one, sovereign over all of it. The whole thing belongs to him. Now, the two other descriptions he gives of himself here help us to comprehend that. First, he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, first and last letter, the A and the Z. Why does that matter? It matters because God is saying, it's all mine. So, like, imagine the part of your life that you're struggling with. Imagine the part of your life that you think has nothing to do with Jesus. And God says here, what letter was that? K? Yeah, that's mine. O, mine. M, mine. D, definitely mine. The whole, the whole thing, from, it's, it's called merism, from like one extreme to the other. The whole thing belongs to him. And so the question we ask is, wait a minute. Am I living in light of that reality? Is Jesus the Lord over, over all the aspects of my life? He's the Alpha and Omega. And again, he's the eternal one, the one who is and was and is to come, which is going to be more important as we think through Revelation on what is to come. But the relevance is then to how we live in light of that today. But the last phrase there, he says, the Almighty. So he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the one who is, was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And we might breeze over that a little too quickly, but this is a loaded term that emphasizes the fact that God is strong enough to be sovereign over every aspect of the universe. That he actually has that capacity and authority. The phrase translates often in the Old Testament, the phrase, uh, Lord of armies, Lord of hosts, the Almighty One. God over, the, over all of it. And so John here, as he says, listen, you need a picture of Jesus. If you're going to survive following Jesus in a tough situation in this world, you need to know who Jesus is. And this is who Jesus is. He is, he is the exalted sovereign Lord over all of creation. We'll see at the end of Revelation that these exact descriptions, Alpha and Omega, the one who, who is and was and is to come, that those are, just, are directly attributed to Jesus himself. That Jesus is none other than God in the flesh who died for us. So here's the reality. Because Jesus frees us from sin, we are free from judgment. We don't have to fear his coming. But also, we are free to follow him. I mean, this is the whole setup. John's like, you need a big, you need a big picture of who God is if you're going to follow him today. And yes, Jesus frees us from sin, and that means we're free from judgment. But all of that has an end game. We are freed from judgment so that we are free now to follow him, to live as his kingdom of priests, to pursue him in every aspect of our lives. So maybe this morning you're walking through these verses and the Lord is bringing to mind areas of your life that, frankly, you are not submitting to him in. Areas where you know you're in rebellion against Jesus. You're doing what you want. And frankly, maybe you don't want Jesus poking around in that area of your life because you know what he thinks about that area of your life. Now, if you were alive in one of these churches that John is writing to 2,000 years ago, you would probably feel like on a daily basis that Rome has the last word on everything. They were the authority. They were the empire. It was all about Rome all the time. And no power could unseat the influence of Rome. And John's like, "Uh, uh, not so fast. Not so fast. Today, there are several world superpowers, these United States being one of them. And we might think, well, the United States is always going to exist, or it's always going to have the last word in everything, or 
you know, it should have the most influence over all of uh, the, the planet or over at least my world or whatever, right? We feel like it's, there's so much weight to the United States, but John says, be careful because there's only one almighty. There's only one Alpha and Omega. He doesn't live on Pennsylvania Avenue. Maybe it's, maybe it's the European Union or socialism or capitalism or the free market. You know, there's all these you know, kind of institutions or ideas, philosophies. And John's like, listen, don't get sucked into worshiping the God of the age. There's only one sovereign over all of it. It's not a nation. It's not an economic theory. Okay? It's not a political philosophy. It's Jesus, the Alpha and Omega. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty One. And so John essentially is saying to his readers and to us, we have permission to rebel against the gods of our age. Like it's okay not to worship the emperor. You, I don't know if you remember, but in the Roman Empire, certain times and places it was uh, you know, important to like worship the emperor, to pretend the emperor was a god. Everybody knew the emperor wasn't really a god because if you read any biographies of the emperors, they were terrible. But anyway, but like they would pretend, you know, like they would have this emperor worship thing. And John's like, you know, you don't have to do that. Well, my neighbors all do it. No, I, I know. I know. But the emperor is not the Alpha and Omega. But if I don't worship the emperor, I might not get that promotion at work. That was a real thing. I might lose my job. John's like, yeah, I, I know. But the emperor is not the Alpha and Omega. Well, but we know someone in the other town and they refused to worship the emperor and they ended up being imprisoned. And I could end up in prison. Yeah, but the almighty one, he's sovereign over that too. And what if following Jesus and not worshiping the emperor means that it actually costs me my life and I don't get to live to old age and see my kids get married and beat my grandkids and so on and so forth and all of that. What if that's the cost? And John says, look to the clouds. He's coming back. So if it comes to that, he's worthy. I mean, in many ways, Revelation is like a bucket of cold water for the church immersed in secular thinking. Wake up. We got to wake up. I wonder, are you hesitating to submit to the lordship of Jesus in your life? And if you are, you need to deal with that. Because there is a line in the sand. And it's not like Jesus might be Lord or maybe he's the Almighty. He is. And the sooner we embrace that, humble ourselves and pursue him with all that we are, the sooner we're living as his kingdom of priests. Listen, because Jesus freed us from sin, we are free from judgment and therefore free to follow him. Again, my friend C.S. Lewis also in that work, Mere Christianity, he said this, we may be content to remain what we call ordinary people. Sometimes you ever want that? I just want to be normal. I've wanted that for a long time. Yeah. Like, I just, I just want to be normal. I, I just want to, I just, I, didn't, I don't want to rock the boat. I just want to, I just want to be ordinary. We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, Lewis says. But he is determined to carry out quite a different plan.
plan. Jesus didn't die so we would be normal. He died so that we would be extraordinary. Members of his kingdom, priests serving for his glory in every aspect of our lives. He is the Alpha and Omega. His lordship is the line in the sand. The question is, are we following him? Would you pray with me and we'll ask him to help us. Lord, we thank you for this continued exaltation of you at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And we ask that you would help us to see your sovereignty over history as a comfort and a blessing. And Lord, we pray that we would respond to this challenge, this warning, that you are going to return. And therefore, we should make changes to our lives today. Lord, protect us from wasting our time. Protect us from just going with the flow. Lord, help us to see that your saving work, Father, Son, and Spirit, your work, rescuing sinners, creating your church, is meant to create a distinct people who love you and serve you in every aspect of our lives. Lord, convict us of areas of our life where we're loving the gods of our age more than you, where we're more loyal to uh, the gods of our age than we are to you. Lord, help us to just catch a glimpse of your eternality, your omnipotence, your love for us. And Lord, we pray that these would not simply be abstract theological ideas, but that they would change us right now, today. Lord, we praise you that by your blood we are free from sin, its penalty and its power. Lord, we praise you that we are therefore free from judgment. We don't have to fear your return. We can say, yes, amen, come, Lord, quickly. But Lord, we ask now that you would enable us by your spirit to follow you. Even when it means we stand out from those around us. Lord, especially as it means we stand out from those around us. So help us, equip us, we ask. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.